Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Revenge. Revenge, from my perspective, revenge is not a sick, twisted feeling, but it's just how you go about revenge. That's probably the more critical thing because that uh, goes to show who you are as a person and how you take out revenge. And for me, I wanted revenge. And to this day, my revenge has been the work that I do in preventing family and domestic violence happening. In the last episode of Australian True Crime, our guest Aman Abrimzadeh told the story of his childhood and adolescence. It was an existence characterised by fear and violence, in which he, his sisters and their mother eventually made a pact never to allow anyone to be left alone with his father. The patriarch of the family ruled with violence and financial control. Nevertheless, Aman's mother and her children did escape with nothing but a few clothes, and they began to create a new life for themselves while hiding in the Adelaide suburbs from his father and his extended family. 
After several years, his mother worked up enough courage to attend a cultural event, the Persian New Year celebrations at the Adelaide Exhibition Centre, with hundreds of other people, believing she'd be safe in such a large crowd. But later that night, Aman was woken by a terrible phone call. He was told his father, who'd also attended the event, had stabbed his mother. Because I was woken up by the phone call, I thought, I'd, this, is, this is the dream. I'm dreaming. And again, when you're woken up to an alarming message at the other end, I was still trying to wake up. I was confused. I didn't know what was happening. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, this is all a dream and the confusion will stop and I'll wake up. But you, you know, autopilot kicks in. So I grabbed my jacket, I grabbed my keys. I was still on the phone and, and I remember saying, you know, is there an ambulance there? What's happening there? Is there someone that can help her? Is she conscious? My sister's friend said, um, we've called an ambulance, but there's no ambulance here yet. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll call an ambulance. So I remember I, I hang up, I went into my younger sister's bedroom and I, and I woke her up. I said, you need to get ready. We need, we need to go. Something has happened. I didn't tell her anything else. I walked out of the room while she was, uh, you know, changing out of her, her pajamas and uh, walked into the family room. And I remember I called Triple O and I asked for an ambulance and I explained to them a story where I said, uh, a stabbing's taken place. There's a 44-year-old woman that's been stabbed. I'm not sure of what her condition is. Do you have an ambulance on the way? And, and all I remember is my young sister, she broke into tears when she heard that. And at the time, I just had to, I had to continue to move because every second that I spent in the house was a, was a waste of time for me. So I went into the room, I comforted her, and I said, come on, we need, we need to go. And I, and, I, and I tried to remain positive, and I said, you know, she, she's okay. I'm sure it's just a, an incident. You know how dad gets angry and he does stupid things. I'm sure it's just... They've just gotten angry about something. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Ambulance is on the way and, and things will be fine. And I remember uh, we jumped into the car and I parked in a place where I wasn't supposed to park. And I, now, I, I now recall it was right in front of my parliament house where it's a permit zone. You're not supposed to park there. I parked there and I ran into the convention center in my, in my trackies. They'd gone into lockdown. I could see through the... Uh, glass sliding doors, I could see a couple of security guards and one of them had a, had a dog with him. The dog was losing it because I was banging on the, on the door and the dog was barking at me and, and going crazy. I remember one of the security guards up, approached me without opening the door through the little gap. He was talking to me and he said, he said, can I help you? And then I said, yes, I'm, I'm here. The, the way I was trying to explain it to him. You probably thought this guy's crazy because I wasn't my tra <laughs> on my trackies. I've got a, a 12-year-old girl next to me. She's in her trackies. And I said, we're here for the event. And this is a, this is a um, formal event. You're supposed to be dressed up. And then I remember, uh, you know, because I'd been on autopilot, I thought, all right, let me, let me just get out of this autopilot and actually try and articulate what I'm doing. And I said, listen, mate, I know there's been an incident inside. The person who's been stabbed is my mum. Just, I'm just here to see my mum. And then when he heard that, he sort of stepped away. He pressed the button, the doors opened, and I, and I ran inside. And I remember there were these two, these double doors. And the people that were coming out of this function room, it was like, I, I felt like a fish swimming upstream because there were people pouring out of this function room and I was trying to get in there. And while I was trying to do that, I was bumping into friends that I had not seen for a long time, for a year or two, because we had essentially gone into hiding. And they were saying hello to me. They were saying, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you dressed like this? So they didn't know. They didn't know what had happened. Well, they, they, they knew that, that the stabbing had, had taken place, but they didn't realise who it was that was stabbed. They didn't realise who had stabbed who. So some people there uh, thought that um, it was essentially two guys and they were fighting and one of them ended up stabbing the other one. It is chaos and confusing. And so I, I went into that room and 20 metres ahead of me, I can see my... 
uh, I can see my mum's laughless body. Uh, I can see the Ambos had just gotten there because they were essentially setting up. And when I saw that, and and it was, um, you know, uh, something inside me, because what, what I essentially saw was my mum in a pool of her own blood on this bit of the carpet. And I remember I looked at the carpet, and it was grey carpet, and the carpet was just like black. It was like dark red. And I saw that, and I, I felt lightheaded as if I was I was going to pass out, and I thought, Again, my younger sister came to mind, and I thought, "No, I better, I better go and um, go and attend to her." So I saw that. I automatically turned to my younger sister, and I saw she was outside the function room, and she was trying to make her way in. And I thought, "No, there's no way. I don't think she should see this." So uh, I uh, went to her. I took her outside. By that time, I saw my older sister and a, and a, and a few other uh, of, of her friends. They all came outside. And we were all, all the guests were essentially escorted into another, another function room. And that's when, you know, we were in that function room for, uh, I don't know, maybe half an hour or so until they could get her out of that room and until they could set up the crime scene, so to speak. We were all, we were all locked in there until the police could work out who was a witness. You know, the police were trying to figure out who was who and whether if there were uh, essentially people that didn't witness or see anything. And they could go home, but if there were witnesses, then they would have to interview them. And I remember even at, at one point, you know, when we were told to go into this other function room to be away from the from the main main function room where the incident had happened, I remember talking to uh, he would have been one of the, the detectives. I demanded to see my dad, and he said, "You can't see him." And I said, "Well, I want to see him. He's my dad, so I've got every right to see him." And I was very angry and and irrational to the point that I actually grabbed his collar and I was forceful and I said, I said, take me to my dad. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to go see him if you're not going to take me to him. He grabbed me firmly and he said, listen, mate, I suggest you control yourself and calm down, go for a walk because if you continue to behave like this, I will have you arrested. And that sort of, you know, brought me back because I thought, oh, shit, I can't go to prison. Like, what about my sister's? What was the plan? In as much as there was a plan, which there probably wasn't, what did you want to say or to your dad? I have no idea. Yeah, right. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I just wanted to see him. Yeah. I don't know, because I was angry. I wanted to, you know, get stuck into him. Like, I, I, I literally wanted to physically beat him at that time. That's what I wanted to do. I was so mad. We got taken to the hospital. And uh, I remember, uh, so my mum was... Uh, my mom was taken to the ICU, but by then she was, uh, there was a, um, I think may, he may have been a doctor or a nurse. He came up to us and said, listen, um, we're going to take your mom into, uh, into the theater. Uh, she's lost a lot of blood. Uh, the, the injuries uh, are severe, uh, but we will do everything uh, we can to try and stop the bleeding and to try and essentially keep her alive. And he said, we'll, we'll be back. You know, we would with an update soon. And I said, how soon? And he said, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I'll come back and see you as, as soon as we can. So my older sister stayed there. My younger sister and I went back home because I wanted to make sure that, you know, if we go back home, we can maybe pack some clothes, maybe, you know, freshen up a little bit and, and essentially go back to the hospital. I called a friend. This is 12.30, 1 o'clock um, in the morning. Uh, I said, are you able to take my younger sister to, to your house? They took my younger sister away. I went into the hospital. When I went into the hospital, I saw the doctor delivering the news to my sister, and I was at my mum had passed. Took a minute to, to try and digest it. And from there, once that happened, we had to go through the process of identifying the body. <clears throat> and I remember um, we were taken into this room, there was a curtain and a, and a window. And so they said, when you're ready, pull the curtain aside and we'll just get you to identify the body. And so the curtain was pulled aside and I saw, again, it was the same thing. It was my mum's lifeless body that was just on a hospital bed with a, with a tube still stuck to the side of her mouth and that was taped to the side of her face. Uh, and then from there, uh, yeah, there was a police officer that was essentially taking a, a statement in terms of saying, you know, who are you? What's your date of birth? You know, who's the deceased? What's their relationship to you? How long have you known her? And because in this situation, your mum's body 
is evidence. Mm. Yeah. So you kids weren't allowed to be in the room with her, to touch her, to no, spend no, time with no. her. Oh, that makes me want to cry. I'm so sorry. I had to say that, but I just really wanted people to understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. The depth of what your dad did. Yeah. It is. You know, death is is something that's inevitable for everyone. But I think it's just been our experience of death that's been so traumatic for us. So automatically when I, you know, when I hear that someone is, is dying or someone is dead, you know, I automatically think that it's, it's been a traumatic experience and that it's, it's such a tragedy and, and that it's, it's devastating to lose someone. But the funny thing is, since then, there have been people that have passed away around me. And, you know, the way some people talk about death, whether if it's been, uh, you know, friends or whether if it's been family members, uh, um, you know, on, on my wife's side, they talk about it in a way that celebrates their life. And it is, it's, it's you know, they've, they've, they've lived a great life, um, you know, they got older, they got sick, and, and, and they passed away. And the peacefulness of, you know, yes, people yeah. try very hard to give their loved ones peaceful deaths. My mum was able to spend a few moments with my dad just after he passed, and you were robbed of that. And so, yeah, the last time you saw your mum is so horrific and so traumatic, and that is part of what your dad did. Right. Yeah. That started a whole other journey because... From there, we remember once I identified the body, we were taken back to the police station. And for approximately four or five hours, we were being interviewed uh, and we had to tell them everything in terms of this is what's happened over the past year, which is probably what made my dad so angry that it's resulted to him killing my mum. But this is everything else that's happened prior to that over two decades. And, and only... Uh, you know, over the past few years, as I think about that interview, the amount of detail I went to and the court proceedings that I started to realize that, you know, what I saw and experienced at home in my, uh, in my younger years was all part of a bigger spectrum of uh, violence and abuse that we uh, label family domestic violence. And, and, and unfortunately, now here in Australia, we lose more than one woman a week to family and domestic violence. It's the murder that we hear about, that we read about in the papers, we hear on the news, but everything else underneath that murder, it's like the iceberg effect. You sort of see the tip of the iceberg, but you don't necessarily see what's under, under the water. That's what, uh, you know, in, in some ways, to those perpetrators, justifies those actions. It's the manipulative behavior, the controlling behavior, the, the family dynamic, what is okay to do, what is okay to, to eat, what is okay to wear, and what isn't. Uh, so it's, it's all of those sorts of things that are essentially part of your family dynamic or the relationship dynamic in some cases that leads to a point where, and unfortunately, it all ends with, with murder. And when, whenever we talk about that statistic of one woman every five days or something in Australia is murdered by a partner or a former partner, I always think, I wonder what next week's woman is doing right now does she know she's in danger? Does she know? Does she realize? Some women do, some women don't. And in this case, you know, we can look very clearly at your mum in the week before. What was she doing? She was going about her business. She was working. She was rebuilding her life with you guys. She was thinking about, oh, why not? Why don't I go to this function? Why don't I see some people after two years? I've been hiding. You know, she was getting a little tiny bit of confidence that's what she was doing. And she didn't think she was in danger. She wouldn't have gone if she did think that. Correct. Your dad, though, he did take this knife with him to the function. Is that true? He did. Yes. Yes. So um, we, uh, we unpacked it all during the murder trial. Now, before we get to the murder trial, what I might do is touch on family court real quick. So my mum passed away 21st of, well, technically 22nd of March because it was after midnight. And in August, five months later, 
we had a date for our uh, family court matter. It was essentially a, a trial for, for, for property settlement and the custody for my younger sister. Now, my dad is in jail. He was talking to his uh, legal team from jail and essentially trying to uh, build a case up until August to take us down as a, as, as a family, so, so to speak. A couple of days prior to the trial, my dad's solicitors write to the judge and say, we no longer act for this person. So my dad essentially sacked his legal team because they weren't willing to do what he asked them to do. You know, it just goes to show how someone's personality and the way they behave, you know, can be, can be so um, rude and, and, and toxic because I have no doubt in my mind, my dad back in Iran was a, was a solicitor. So he was a lawyer. So uh, I have no doubt that he would, he would have been sitting there, uh, inflated ego, essentially turning around saying, hey, listen, I know this business. I know this game. You need to go and do this. And this is the way, this is the argument. So we get to the trial. And the morning of the trial, I remember we went in essentially waiting to, uh, waiting to see you know, what this trial is going to look like. My older sister and I uh, were, were essentially there representing my mom. Uh, my younger sister wasn't involved in that in those proceedings at all, and we thought that we were going to be cross-examined by his team, by his legal team. Our barrister comes back and says he no longer has a defence team, and uh, he's able to cross-examine you oh, uh, directly. No. Yeah. So um, video link. He's he's in prison. We take the stand, and the cross-examination begins. That was the first time, if you can call it that. That I spoke to my dad. After he'd murdered your mum? Five months later, being cross-examined by him in family court, which I will say, I can't remember when the laws changed, but it probably would have been a good five, six years ago. Not, 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 uh, not soon enough and not early enough for us, but nevertheless. Another example of finding a way to legally abuse you. Yeah. And how did you keep your shit together standing there having that man cross-examine you? You, you, you know what? I, um, you know, I mean, it was five months after, so very much still grieving, very much still in shock and trying to process what has happened to us and trying to figure out what does the future hold for us and what does the future look like for us? Because we were essentially, you know, my younger sister was essentially an orphan, no mum, no dad. My older sister and I became legal guardians. And we were all, all three of us, we're trying to figure out what, what the future holds for us. And you know what, credit to our legal team, to our solicitor and barrister, because they essentially said, given you'll be cross-examined by, by your dad, uh, you know, do the best you can to try and stay cool, calm and collected. Try not to confuse either matter in terms of what is happening with the murder trial, which was still you know, a couple of years down the track and what is happening here in terms of the family court matter. Because he would have been trying to use everything he knows about you, and he know, you know, he's your father, so he would have been trying to push every primal button in you. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, and, and that did happen. I guess you know, there, were, there were things around you know, his, his behaviour, the need for a restraining order, um, the threats, the abuse. He was essentially saying, you're lying. He was saying, that's not true. Did I, you know, did I abuse your mother? Yes, you did. That's not true. Did I abuse you or your sisters? Yes, you did. Well, that's not true. And that, that, was, that was essentially his, his response. It was saying, you know, and at the end of it, in terms of, uh, you know, if you can call it a closing statement uh, or summing up, he was essentially saying, you know, these are all stories that have been made up uh, by my ex-wife and, and now my children are essentially, uh, you know, replicating those stories and none of it is true. And uh, I'm just not in a position to have, uh, have a legal team that's able to truly and properly represent me. It was a real mess and a real, I would hate to be in that judge's shoes in terms of trying to make sense of it all and trying to get this trial over and done with so that you can essentially hand down your judgment and move everyone on. Because family court, I've, I've heard from a lot of people regardless of whether if you're the wife or the husband or you're, you're the child, every single party walks away unhappy. The only people that are happy are the, are the lawyers are the involved lawyers. because they get paid. Yeah. But did that feel like vindication in some way that after all the years of, of it only happening in front of you and your family in the house, to have other people see 
who he is like that? It was. It was, I guess, you know, I didn't have to go overboard in terms of uh, really proving no. to, to, to the judge who he is because he was in jail. And even though you kind of had to be, you know, and I don't know how the judge would do this, but you have to be impartial about that. You have to say, right, these are all technically and legally speaking, these are all allegations and there are charges, uh, but there's no conviction. You can't, you can't take that into account. But the fact that he was in jail, the fact that he did not have legal representation and the way, you know, legal circles work, uh, you know, if this law firm was no longer representing this person, there must be a there must be a reason. Lawyers and judges talk to each other. Yeah, the judge isn't a robot. Like they, in as much as they have to, you know, keep matters separate and all that. Yeah. When the judge is sitting there and this guy's going, "No, my kids are making up all these stories about me being abusive," while he's sitting in jail for stabbing his wife, murdering her in front of three hundred yeah. people, he's showing himself for who he is. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So, so um, no, we, we had uh, great legal advice. We had a good legal team and we, we got through that. And it was uh, in 2012, just over two years after the incident, when we had the murder trial. If you'd like to talk to someone about abuse that's taken place in your life, no matter how long ago it happened, your GP is always a good place to start. If that's not going to work for you, you can contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or via their website 1800respect.org.au or you can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone counselling service on 13 11 14. 
he said that he'd had some kind of breakdown because of the rejection from your mum and that at the time he was hallucinating about his youngest daughter, your little sister, being attacked by dark, ugly men. She wasn't even there. Uh, but he uh, said he was he was hallucinating about that and that he, he'd not planned to hurt your mum when he came to the function and all of that. Well, you know, but then they proved that, well, he brought a knife with him and witnesses said that he sat and watched her like a hawk all night long and that it was when she got up to leave the function that he charged at her from behind and stabbed her eight times. Yep, that's it. So I guess all of that came out very clearly in the cross-examination over four days. And so he just, he, he had to give up, did he? He did, because I think uh, every time he would uh, try and navigate his way around the way the prosecutors were painting him, he would, uh, he would bump into um, barriers. When he was explaining his story about, I was hallucinating, the prosecutor said, well, what was your hallucination about? But before that, you know, she was saying, well, we've got um, that they had two different uh, psych reports. Both psych reports said, yeah, look, he's under pressure, obviously, with the, with the divorce, but nothing to see here, essentially. So she made that clear for the jury that, you know, there's been two independent psych reports done. Both of them have come back with the same result. So what is it that you were hallucinating about? Were you on medication? Do you drink? Were you on drugs? Were you on anything? No, no, I wasn't. Okay, so had you had these hallucinations before? No, I haven't. So this was the first time in however old old he was, you know, fifty something in your, you know, in uh, in history that you've actually hallucinated. Well, yes, this is the first time I remember it. Okay, so you know what happened? Uh, yes, I could see my my younger daughter, and uh, he was he was playing. Oh, who was he? Who was she playing with? So she would get it. She would want him to explain all of those things. Oh, she was just playing in the playground. In the playground? No one else? What sort of playground was it? Was it um, something that you had taken her to before? Yes, yeah, I'd taken her. Oh, so you do spend time with your, with, your young, with your younger daughter. And so every time he would respond, it just seemed like she had already planned the next question. It's like she had scenario planned. And also, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it is to lie to invent a hallucination <laughs> if you haven't had one if someone's really pushing you to describe a hallucination that you haven't had i can't imagine how hard that would be to make that up and and that, that's where he got caught out because there were so many things that the prosecutor was essentially highlighting that it, this seems a little bit different to what you explained to us a couple of days ago so she was essentially unpicking it or saying this is all a lie and and the jury could could see that and you know what when you looked at his defense counsel and I felt for them because they're essentially sitting there thinking, shit, we're, you know, we've, we've worked hard with him and, and, and I think he's essentially gone off script. God, yeah. So he, he changed his plea to guilty. Yep. After a, a lunch break, we, we all came back. And I think there's a, there's a particular way that you, you plead to a, to a charge. And that is essentially, it's very straightforward and simple that I plead guilty. There's certain words that you have to say and they're very basic. He needed two different goes at it. So the first the first time, he sort of stood up and he said, explain this story about, you know, there was a, a lot of agitation, there was a lot of this, there was that, and um, I didn't mean to do it, and uh, I'm sorry for what's happened, so I, um, uh, I plead guilty. The judge didn't accept it. because, And I think the judge didn't accept it because if he was to um, appeal uh, that convictions or the, or, or the sentence, then there would be room left over for the, um, I guess, the appeal judges to sort of pick it apart. We were given a five-minute recess and uh, his barrister went to him and said, this is what you need to read. These are the words, nothing less, nothing more. We came back after a five-minute recess. Uh, everyone, everyone stood up and then he sort of said, yes, I plead guilty. And he sort of mumbled a few other things. And I remember this, he mumbled a few other things, but then he stopped because I think he thought, right, I, you know, this, this is it. There's, if I'm pleading guilty, there's no other way around it. Yeah. What a relief. So that saved you however many days or weeks of the rest of the trial. Yeah, that probably saved us a couple of weeks. Then a month or so later, the sentencing took place. Uh, it was given 26 years. Wow. With a minimum? 26 years minimum. Wow. Yeah. That's massive. That's a long sentence, isn't it? But he did appeal. God. He did, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we didn't put it past him. We said, yeah, you know, you, you're going to appeal. And, and, and he did, but it didn't go anywhere. 
uh, it sort of died down. And then the next thing for us was the coronial inquest. So what are they looking into? They're looking into whether or not your mum was let down by... By the system, essentially. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. Yep. And that's what they, yeah, that, that's essentially what they did. I think there were probably a few things that led to a coronial inquest. One was that there was uh, there was an internal investigation conducted by SA Police. To their credit, they conducted this investigation. They came back with a number of findings and a number of recommendations which they implemented. But also my public commentary around us, the, the children, uh, and, and my mum, we saw this incident coming. We reported it to the police. And these were all public comments made, made by us once the trial finished. So when the conviction was done, then I was able to make some comments because up until then I wasn't able to speak about this publicly. So when the conviction took place, I made uh, some of those comments in terms of, uh, you know, we were let down by the system and, uh, and the fact that we, could, we actually did see this murder coming and we warned the authorities and there was nothing uh, adequate being done about it. You have spoken out and you've continued to speak. You've decided to work in this space and to become an advocate. And in fact, is that why, sir, you were awarded an Order of Australia Medal? Uh, yes, I would say so. Yeah, um, uh, yeah given given my advocacy in the space. Um, so awarded for service worthy of particular recognition. That's the official sort of blurb as to why people get these. Um, so you are uh, OAM, goes after your name or before your name? What's the after official? After the name, yes. After your because, name? Because my surname isn't long enough, I could do with three other letters. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get some more letters going there. Yeah. Um, so... Tell us, what is your work? What have you chosen to do? I guess it's probably it probably took years to distill, you know, in your mind and practically what you wanted to do in this space and where you wanted to place yourself. So where are you with that now? To be honest, I never saw myself doing any sort of work in this space. And, and even to this day, my nine to five is not in this sector at all. I, I work in design and construction. I'm a project manager. That's what I do uh, for, for a living, so to speak. The early warning signs that I now talk about, that I now uh, raise awareness of, and I, I do a fair bit of speaking at uh, schools and workplaces and talk about some of the patterns, some of the behaviours, some of the things that, that are essentially the underlying causes and, and what causes you know unhealthy relationships. And the reason why I can relate to that is because um, in my first serious relationship, I started to replicate a lot of the behaviors that my dad, that I saw in my dad, essentially. So I was growing up to be uh, my dad. Even though I knew what was happening at home uh, wasn't right, I still went on to essentially mimic some of the some of the stuff that I saw at home. And there were things like jealousy, um, emotional abuse, controlling behavior, uh, being manipulative, those sorts of things I started to see. and. I was 18 at the time, and uh, that relationship didn't even last 18 months. And when that relationship fell apart, when she rightfully broke up with me because of who I was, I was devastated. And it was essentially through that that I started to notice that, hold on a second, you know, because my, my first thought was, you're the problem. It's you. It's not me. It's you. And then, I don't know, you sort of, you know, tend to overthink and overanalyze. And through that process, I started to unpack it all and thought, hold on a second, maybe I was being harsh. Maybe I shouldn't have been such an asshole. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have been a bastard. Maybe I should have been a little bit nicer. Maybe I should have communicated with her a little bit more. Maybe if there was something that was bugging me, I should have flanged it with her rather than uh, be mean to her. So they were the sorts of things that I started to sort of think about and unpack a little bit. And, and from there on, if, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, every relationship that I got into, I was mindful of some of those early warning signs. Kind of glad that I did that because um, that was a bit of a process and a bit of a journey for me to better understand uh, who I was becoming and uh, whether if there was something that I needed to be mindful of and whether if I, would, if I was comfortable with something that I said or with a particular behavior. And also, you, you know what the other thing is? So uh, um, my wife, she's uh, great at looking out for things that might trigger me or, uh, or certain things that might, uh, you know, that might make me feel uncomfortable or anything like that. So she's, uh, you know, we, we've been together for, um, we've been married for, for four years. We've probably been together for um, uh, roughly six or seven years. I guess when you work in the space as well, and you obviously, you talk about it a lot. You talk and, you know, and she talks about it a lot. So you're 
hyper aware mm. and hyper vigilant. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's why it's been such a long time yeah. that I have that I've had anything like that. And I, and I would say, uh, you know, particularly before uh, my mum passed away. So once she passed away, that's when I probably started to really unpack it and and think about some of the um, things that I've learned unintentionally and really start to reverse them. But the work that I do uh, in the family domestic violence prevention sector uh, has, has sort of led me to, to a number of different places. One of those things is back in 2015, we essentially, alongside my sisters, established a not-for-profit organization called the Zara Foundation. We're named after my mum. And we decided to focus on, I guess, you know, we work in the post-crisis sphere. And that means that when women, just like my mum, uh, go through the crisis service where they have just left an abusive relationship, they need a home, uh, they need some help with, be it family court or getting a restraining order in place. Everything you guys needed, everything you guys needed when you were in the car, when you'd made that first brave dash out of the house, and then you started to see all those obstacles. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So we we went through the the crisis service, and the crisis services do a fantastic job. And we wanted to we wanted to come along and complement what they do. So when we left the safe house to go into a private rental and to essentially move on and and rebuild our lives, that's the post crisis phase, and that's the that's the space that the foundation plays in. And we, we decided to focus on finances because if you, if you remember, one of the challenges we faced was facing poverty. Finances became a huge issue for us. So we decided to uh, uh, focus on that. Financial literacy uh, and economic empowerment is essentially what the foundation does. And we've got a number of uh, initiatives um, that we use to, to support our uh, clients. Uh, we have a financial literacy program. We have uh, financial counsellors, and these are trauma-informed financial counsellors. They're particularly trained to essentially identify certain behaviours or certain things that some of our participants see and experience. And it's essentially the same sort of stuff that you and I have been talking about in terms of even though you may not live under the same roof as a perpetrator, but that perpetrator continues to abuse you and continues to control and manipulate you in some way, be it through the legal system, be it through the bank, be it through lawyers, whatever it might be. You know what else I'm seeing on your website here? I love the Gifts for Good catalogue. This is so fantastic for me and for listeners who want to get involved and support you. Is It's one of those ways where you can give gifts from ranging from $25 donations, but they're in support of your participants. Like, for example, for a $400 donation, that can support one child with school supplies for next year. Up to, this is a great one for an organisation, say $2,950 donation will support the delivery of 12 months of the Zara's Open House program for a woman and her family. So this is a great way to get involved. Mm. Yeah, so we, 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 we try and um, play in that space and really look at um, how we can assist our participants become empowered and, and essentially become financially independent. Because you, you know what happens when when something like this happens to you, you lose all hope and you lose all faith. And to be able to dream again, to, to have some hope, that's probably the thing. You know, there might not be nothing there, but at least you're feeling hopeful. At least you know, hey, things are looking up, and I will get this. Not now, not next week, not next month, but soon enough, I will have this. Oh, it's such a positive thing, and I know that not every family surviving trauma, homicide. I know not every family can do this. This is not how every family grieves, but you guys are, are doing something so positive in your mum's name, literally in your mum's name. This is amazing. Oh, I'm getting emotional. It's oh. so beautiful. Well done. We've had good people around us. We've had great people around us. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just share this story with you. Um, so technically, my mum passed away on a Monday. Uh, and so you can imagine on a Monday, Monday morning, when we were driving back from the police station, my older sister and I, it was peak hour traffic, I remember this, like 7, 7.30 in the morning. And I remember looking at everyone carrying on about their business. People are going to work, people are getting on a bus, jumping off a bus, people saying goodbye to each other, grabbing coffees. And it was, a, it was a work day, it was a Monday. And in my head, I was thinking, how can the world operate? How can the world go on? How can life go on when this has just happened? But but it does. But it does. Life goes on. And I remember the rest of that day, you know, I was really upset, trying to process everything, trying to understand what's what's happened to us and what it means for us. 
on the Tuesday morning, essentially the next day, at the door of our place, and there was a knock, check to see who it is, and it was, uh, so we were still, it had probably been maybe two or three months that we hadn't had any contact with that domestic violence service that helped us when we left, when we left the family home. So at the door was my mom's case manager, who was essentially, when we were in that safe house, she was there two or three times a week, checking in, helping us, particularly helping my mom get a restraining order, taking her to the police station, helping her navigate the family court, all of that sort of stuff. But I guess as time goes on, because of the number of cases they have, they need to be mindful of the new women that are coming through their system. So, uh, uh, you know, they do less and less visits, less often, but they're still there and they constantly used to tell us if anything urgent happens, if anything happens, then ball means reach out. So obviously they had read the papers, they had listened to the news, they knew what happened. And so they were, uh, they were there uh, at our house. And I remember I, was, I saw, I saw the case manager, I saw her, Sandra was her name. And the next to Sandra was the CEO of the DV service uh, provider, Maria is her name. Uh, and I saw her. So anyway, they came in. Uh, and I guess, you know, they came through to sort of check in on us and, and see how we're all going. And Maria, the CEO, she's, she's still there. She's still working. She's still, uh, she's still the CEO. And she was actually the critical person in terms of getting this foundation up and going was her because of her, um, essentially because of her experience in the sector. I didn't know anything about the sector. My older sister doesn't work in the sector. We had no idea what we were doing. There was a will, there was some energy. And I guess, you know, if I'm, if I'm being honest, there was a level of anger. There was a level of um, uh, negative energy that I didn't necessarily want to get rid of in a, in a negative way. And so, uh, you know, I had to channel that in a, in a positive way. And so this came about. Such a good point. Yeah, it's got to go somewhere. So, yeah. It does. And you know what? I'll, I always say this when I, when I speak to um, school kids as well. Revenge. Revenge. From my perspective, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but from my perspective, revenge is not a sick, twisted feeling, but it's just how you go about revenge. That's probably the more critical thing because that uh, goes to show who you are as a person and how you take out revenge. And for me, I wanted revenge. And to this day, my revenge has been the work that I do in preventing family and domestic violence happening, be it the work that I've done in the foundation, be it the work that I do when I go to workplaces and talk to them about family and domestic violence, be it the work that I do when I go to um, schools and talk to students about what healthy relationships look like, or uh, be it the work that I do when I um, sometimes get invited uh, by the prisons to go and talk to the prisoners about healthy relationships and family and domestic violence. So it's essentially all of that work. That, that's my revenge. That's how I take out revenge, purely because there's, there's energy in me and I need to get rid of it in some way. So might as well be positive and productive. That's a really, really, really good point and good advice. You've just said one of those things I know I'll never forget. That's That's brilliant. And also, we must give a shout out to Sandra and Maria, because as you mentioned their visit, I thought about, I was somewhere once, I was standing somewhere and I happened to be with some people in a similar work to what they do. And there was a report in the newspaper, it was early morning, and there was a report in the news about a woman who'd been found dead in a house somewhere, as you know, we wake up to those stories. And they were talking about it and they were trying to find out if they knew the lady you know, and they were talking about that's what they go through when they hear that news, when they wake up or drive to work or whatever, they check the news on their phone. They just immediately think, is this one of ours? Is this a lady we've been working with? Do we know this family? And as you said, Maria's still in the business. She still, she gets up every day and it's heartbreaking, but she pushes through for families like you, you know, and for no doubt to see what you and your sisters are doing is, um, one of the great success stories that keeps her going and keeps people in, in this um, sector because it's bloody hard. It is. It is hard work. Yeah. Thank you to our guest, member of the Order of Australia, Aman Abrimzadeh. On behalf of Australian true crime listeners, we've donated to the Zara Foundation, which Aman founded in honour of his mother. And there's a link in the show notes to this episode and also on our Facebook page to help you if you'd like to do the same. 
If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.